Welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast, a podcast that equips therapists to thrive in business, expand their reach, and create flourishing and meaningful lives, both personally and professionally. I'm your host, Claire Blakey. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice. I believe in being a multi-passionate therapist. You can have a thriving, financially impactful business, be a leader in the community, and also a business entrepreneur. You don't have to choose, and your impact as a clinician can go beyond the therapy room. I believe that you can be a therapist and an entrepreneur, a therapreneur, and I believe that every therapist deserves the tools, community, and resources to build thriving businesses and flourishing lives. I pair my passion and previous career in PR, marketing, and blogging with my education and experience as a clinician to equip therapists like you who are multi-passionate and wanting to pursue additional opportunities to grow your skill set and expand your reach. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Let's create impact and build flourishing lives and businesses we're proud of. Here we go. Hi, Jen, and welcome to the Flourishing Therapreneur Podcast. We're so glad you're here. If you could take a minute and just introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, your clinical experience, or anything that's really relevant for them to know about you. Sure. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's see. I have a private practice in Santa Barbara, California. Um, There's me, and then there's also three associates that work under me that are getting their hours Um, my practice has grown into sort of my umbrella term is, um, sex and gender. So I work, um, a lot with couples and individuals on their sex lives. I also work with folks struggling with sex addiction and LGBT populations. So that that's where the gender and sexual orientation piece comes in. Awesome. So with that, um, you said you're a supervisor as well. You have three associates. How long have you been doing that part of your, your business? Yeah. So I started that in the summer of 2019. So, um, we are heading into it the third year. So been a big learning process for all of us. Yeah. Well, I have so many questions about that. I might even ask them a little bit later on just to kind of better understand the structure of your business. Um, but just so for people who are listening, um, you are a licensed marriage and family therapist and you are also finishing your doctorate. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm finishing, um, a PhD in sexology, which is all about human sexuality, which is of course my specialization. So yeah, I'm in, I'm just finishing my dissertation. All the coursework is done. So that's super exciting. Oh my gosh. You're not ambitious or anything, are you? I feel like imagining (laughs) a full private practice associates that are, you know, depending on you for referrals and for supervision. And then also a doctorate program is very intensive. So that's really impressive that you are juggling all of that. Yeah, it's a lot, (laughs) but it's, it's good. It's coming. It's, it's all coming together and yeah, feels like it's coming to a close the, 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 um, PhD program anyway. And, um, then I'll be able to use all that I mean, I'm using it anyway, but use it in a more formal way. So that's exciting. Yeah. I was going to ask, because I know it's even just a conversation I've had with you off of the podcast of, you know, I also have my master's in clinical psychology and I've considered getting my PhD or my PsyD. Um, For anyone that's listening that maybe is in a similar boat, maybe they also are already licensed or have already, you know, gotten a certain degree, but maybe want to go back. Can you kind of walk us through maybe what your decision process was, what kind of pulled you in that direction and any advice you'd have for someone that also wants to get a doctorate? 
Yeah, boy, I really wrestled with this. And in fact, I almost didn't do the master's and went straight to the um, PsyD, but I wasn't sure I was going to love it. And so the master's option was um, a shorter road. I could see clients sooner and I wanted to really get, you know, get my feet wet. So I went that route, but it never stopped kind of tickling my, my back brain of like, I want more. I want this um, deeper uh, knowledge in a certain area. So I looked at quite a few programs. I interviewed um, a bunch of people in my life that I respect that are um, clinicians and asked about their journeys. Um, I looked at the books that I um, have enjoyed to see what the author's credentials were. I, you know, So that was sort of my uh, unscientific <laughs> effort to decide. Um, ultimately, I chose this program because it was so focused on sex, and that's what I wanted. Um, a lot of the PsyD programs I found... Um, were very general. So there was more of the same from masters, but, you know, a deeper look at them. And that just isn't what I wanted. I didn't want to do forensics. I didn't want to do families. I didn't want to do, you know, a lot of those courses didn't speak to me. Um, really, I wanted to focus on sex and sexuality. So that's sort of how I chose my program. And there's a handful of these. So, and, um, awesome. the clinical, is usually more the PsyD, but there is there isn't really offerings for for the PsyD and sexology. That's not really a thing. Mm. So, okay, yeah, because I was gonna say I feel like there must be a piece with um, you know already having your license, already having your business, already having this clinical expertise, and then you know doing a, a doctor program that is so specific to what you're already working with. I imagine like it probably brings your sessions to life in a different way. I think that's something that I really am fascinated about with maybe going back to school is the idea of like, I almost feel like I wish I paid more attention in grad school. Like now that I'm actually <laughs> in the weeds of it, now that I'm actually, you know, you do a clinical traineeship site or you start accruing hours, but you're still such a baby therapist. And so there must be such a strength with, you know, really, you know, learning from the greats, learning about very specific things for your practice. First of all, you still own all those books that you bought in grad school, so you could go back and reread them. <laughs> um, but also, you know, a big model that has been presented in the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years is this certificate model. Um, instead of going back and doing a full additional degree, you can go get very specialized training in whatever. I know you've done that with your um, perinatal mental health. Um, I also yeah. did it with, um, with, uh, I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. So that was a certification mm -hmm. I also did before the PhD. Um, you could also do it in a, in a host of other specializations. So, you know, that, that usually is a little more time, um, limited and it's hyper-focused. So that's another avenue, um, like, a if you, if you were interested in substance or eating disorders or whatever specialization, there's a lot of different certificates available. Couples work, certainly the Gottman's offer, um, couples work. Mm -hmm. So those are, uh, those are other avenues for a deeper dive into a specific area of interest. that's less expensive and less time intensive. I love that reminder because I think sometimes we can get one track mind of like, okay, this is the formula or this is the mm -hmm. equation, but you're right. There's a lot more out there now. And there's a lot of, you know, specialized trainings and things that can really still improve our offerings and still give us an edge or give us more of a specialty without maybe the years and years of additional debt or work. Um, but there is just something about a doctorate. So that's really exciting that you're, <laughs> you're getting that. And I'm excited to cheer you on as you complete that. Um, 
And I'm wondering, as we kind of start transitioning, um, I really want to hear more, um, and I'm sure the listeners do too, about how you began your private practice. So maybe you could start us back to your grad school days, like what your clinical sites were, how you started to kind of, you know, even in the beginning, start building those muscles and building the framework for what you grew. Yeah. So I entered grad school at 40 as a third career. And, you know, this was something that was always in kind of my back brain about, I don't know, I I just sort of had this secret desire to do it. And I, I had a big life event and I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make the jump. I want, I want to live the second half of my life doing this, this other work that has always been sort of intriguing to me. Um, I think entering grad school at 40 is a whole different animal than like 25 you know, mm-hmm. um, I was really focused. Um, it was a big departure for leaving a, a very, um, lucrative job and, you know, trying to, trying to make that decision was a big one. And so I was focused in a way and I was prepared to really, uh, tackle this. And, um, so as I graduated into my private practice, it wasn't just like, Oh, I think I'm going to do this. You know, my, my background was in marketing. I had a degree in public relations and then I worked as a journalist for about 10 years. So I've, I've maintained websites. I've, you know, built, um, content. I'm, I'm comfortable generating sort of marketing materials and, um, doing all the the business side of things with clients and price setting and all that. So it was a really good foundation. And I was conscious about doing that as I ended grad school. I, you know, I started my website, I started writing content. Um, I, I was always kind of looking a couple steps ahead to make sure that I was lined up for the next um, jump. And so when it came time to, you know, to be at my sites during school, but then also fold in private practice and then eventually fold in my own practice, it was sort of already, it looks like it just happened seamlessly, but it was very considered on my part. Okay. And when you were in grad school, you were an associate under someone else's private practice. I'm just trying to get a sense of how you built that framework. So the first year of grad school or the second year of grad school, but the first year I did uh, clinical practice, you know, as a, as a practicum, I couldn't do private practice, obviously, cause you're still in school. So I worked at two sites simultaneously that were both the closest I could find toward private practice where I was collecting money. I was setting my own schedule. Um, you know, so they sort of mirrored private practice. Um, one was an LGBT and then the other was just a general interest, um, mental health center, um, here in Santa Barbara. So I worked at both of those for a year. And then once I had finished, you know, school, I continued to work at both of those for the next year. And then I also folded in a private practice. So that was a third site, which is kind of crazy. And I wouldn't recommend that for everybody, (laughs) but, um, but I wanted to get my hours. I was also super strategic as I was doing it in terms of making sure that I got supervision basically every week of the year. So in the end, I, you know, I finished, I think you can't finish any faster than 104 weeks. And I think I finished in 110 weeks. Like it was just, you know, I was, I was on a mission. I, I, I got, I front loaded my couple's hours because I I knew I didn't want to see kids. So I basically saw like maybe 20 hours of kids, um, teenagers, but I really focused right from the go. I was asking for couples and I was trying to draw couples because those hours are harder to get at a lot of sites. I knew that was the work I wanted to do. And I also didn't want to end up doing all these extra hours in order to satisfy that category. So, um, Mm. yeah, that last, that last year I worked at all three sites and towards the end of that, then I, um, 
I wind, you know, I winded down at the, the two main sites and just had the private practice at the end and was able to transition all my clients over. Um, they were paying a low fee, but it was a nice beginning. You know, it, it, it gave me a, a, a foundation to start my private practice. I, I think I transitioned nine clients, you know, right away. So that was really nice. Yeah. Well, what I'm hearing as you're sharing is just this goal driven, um, like next step kind of focus of like being present in the clinical hours that you're doing in the practicums, but really being thoughtful, whether that was, you know, specializing and having a practicum site for the LGBTQ community, or whether that was, you know, how you describe both of your sites of even if they weren't private practice yet, since you were still in school, they really mirrored a lot of those Mm -hmm. skills. And so you were absorbing beyond the clinical, you were absorbing um, content and ideas in terms of how to structure your business. Um, And then that's phenomenal that you said that you had that associateship um, where you got to then transfer those clients into your business. Um, So what would you say, I'm wondering, because I'm imagining some people that are listening that are also either pre-licensed or maybe they're licensed and they're just really curious to launch. Um, How soon did you like launch a website or start networking or start promoting? Like where do people begin when it comes to really putting themselves out there? Yeah, I started working on my website in grad school. I think probably my first year in grad school, um, I did the frame out and then I started writing content for the sections. Um, just little articles, you know, about, um, sort of my take on mental health and specific, um, instances. Eventually what I did is I would, um, sort of encapsulate like a session, obviously not, you know, revealing anybody's identity, but the general mechanics of what worked in a session. And that's sort of a quick capture of like that little snapshot. Um, that was my content. I joined the board of mm-hmm. the association of marriage and family therapists. Um, also my first year of grad school. So the networking began right away for me. I've learned that long ago that that is like, it's, it's so much about who, you know, in terms of getting, getting referrals. Mm-hmm. I mean, my whole freelance life before this was about referrals. So um, I joined the board because I also wanted to understand what is the structure, who who are the leaders in this town. I, I, you know, I wanted to know that, and I'm just kind of inclined towards that type of work anyway. Um, so, yeah, that was right away, and I, I had the website already live. I mean, I had to put all over the place who I was supervised by and everything. I couldn't put myself out there as yeah. as anything else, but um, but it was already there. And from a standpoint of mm-hmm. building, um, you know longevity online. So you have a presence where your search engine optimization is better. Longer is better. Fresh content is better. So, you know, I also, I will say this is a side note, but I made sure during grad school to scrub the internet of anything I didn't want on there, knowing that I was going to be out there in a different capacity. So I went through my, my social media and pulled any picture off of there. Um, you know, I, I just was mindful. I mean, I'd been a journalist, so I had lots and lots of articles that you could find, um, and you know, photography and stuff. And that was all fine to be on there. Um, I just was mindful that, you know, down the road, clients are going to be looking me up. And if you pull that stuff off there, you know, it, it, it has a shelf life and then it drops in the search. So yeah, planning. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I feel like, um, like as you're sharing some of the steps that you took, whether it's launching your website proactively and like mm-hmm. building the SEO for that, or whether it was, you know, volunteering on the board and really learning from professionals, learning from the leaders or 
like you just said, of thinking proactively and thinking about what will my future self thank me for if I am a licensed therapist in private practice and a client Googles me. So I really like all three of those things that you just brought up are all really thoughtful and intentional and um, not just looking at the moment, but looking at the next step too, and looking at the impact of your actions. And um, I think that's great advice too, for anyone that is pre-licensed or anyone that is, you know, building their private practice that our digital footprint, you can begin that now. That's a really easy, free way, whether it's social media, whether it's a website, it's a way to start building that legacy that will help you when people are Googling your name or looking for a certain specialty. And I also really liked um, that advice that you gave about how you wrote your articles, because I think sometimes we sit down and we want to write something and we think we have to think up something and that just, you know, gives us writer's block or makes us feel like imposter syndrome of like, what am I going to write about? But kind of really just using what you're already doing and then just translating that into an article. One, it's going to be way more relatable because people are actually going to connect with that. Yes. But also it's, it's a way for you to like repurpose what you've already just done, which is something that a lot of people talk about with building content or building social media or building a website is repurpose your content, whether that is a video, turn that into a post, turn that into a blog post, turn that into a presentation. So you're already kind of creating the bones of that. So that's like, I, I feel like that's really encouraging yeah. because I'm sure a lot of people have that question of how do I even begin writing? How do I begin putting and myself And if you think there? about like, so from a supervisor, putting my supervisor hat on for a second or my teacher, you know, I also teach at Antioch and it's like, okay, so you just had a session. Tell me in a snapshot, what just happened? What did you do? Like you came out of it feeling good, feeling not so good. Like what, what went right or what went wrong and what were the try to actually boil down the moment by moment. You know, we're taught to do this to some degree in our supervisory um, dynamic. And certainly if you've ever done video within, you know, a session or something and then had to like go over it with your supervisor, but it's basically that exercise written into, you know, maybe six to 800 word uh, piece of just, you know, this is what was presenting. This is how the client, you know, showed up for it. This is maybe some interventions. This is what, res you know, resulted that's, that's it. And it's, people love that stuff and it gives clients, potential clients, a lot of confidence that you have that awareness. Mm -hmm. And even if it's like, Hey, I tried this thing and it didn't work. It's okay. Like that's still information. And it shows that you're thinking and critically thinking about your work and that's good. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. That's a really good reminder. Now I'm wondering, because, um, I feel like even locally in Santa Barbara, I feel like you have developed a strong reputation for really creating a successful business. You talked about, you know, you know, started out as an associate, then, you know, launched your own business and now you have associates. So it's kind of like this full circle experience. Um, could you maybe share a little bit about, um, what made you want to have associates under you? Was it partially because of the impact it had on you or wanting to give more to the community or kind of walk us through that thought process and that expansion for your business? Yeah. The market for supervisors was super slim. When I was looking, I literally could only find one person that was supervising. Um, and wow. I just don't think that's, that's enough. You know, I mean, I know we have a handful now and there's been even more during, um, during COVID because it's been more feasible for, for supervisors that don't have to provide space. But I just feel like it's hard. The business side of this is hard to learn. We don't get it in grad school. So that 
doesn't really happen. And if we can mentor, we can also help others thrive, right? We can help others mm-hmm. learn how to do this. I like that role. I like that dynamic. I like feeling um, like I'm part of a community where it's, it's not like everyone feels like there's not enough work, but instead everyone feels like they're doing great work and make, making a good income. And so I have a business background and I feel like I know how to do this and I enjoy having the colleagues because private practice can be a little bit lonely too. So I like having mm-hmm. the associates here because it feels like we collaborate and I welcome the time in supervision where we discuss, especially as they get more experience, we discuss cases um, where I'm not the only expert in the room. They've all gotten additional training and they've got good judgment and good clinical experience. And I, I enjoy those conversations. Mm. So it sounds like there's so many components to it, whether it's like the mentorship piece, like you spoke into like how lonely private practice can be. So you really almost have created like colleagues and, mm-hmm. um, fellow, um, collaborators, whether that's on cases or just the way that you give and grow. And I like how you described how that would help you thrive and them thrive too. So it's kind of like a mutual thing because they're learning from you. They're learning your business skills. They're learning the way you structure your private practice. So maybe they can replicate similar to what you did before of being an associate and then launching your own business. So that's a really valuable thing because we're and I make an effort to, to not just say here, you know, I, I give them a ton of business because I get so many calls. So the other part of this is of course the business side. Like I definitely, it financially makes sense for me to have associates. They make good money. I make good money with them, but yeah. also like the business side of things. And I, I'm always super transparent. Like, here's what we're earning. Here's all my overhead. Um, here's how, here's my strategy for structuring things. You know, I, I, I try to show them how to actually have a business and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people really do that and how many people have had that opportunity. So I think it's pretty helpful and it just feels like they're going to be able to launch into a successful career. I think that's cool. Yeah, no, totally. Well, speaking of success and building business, um, I feel like something that I've learned a lot from you about is just really owning the financial piece and, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're a cash pay business or do you Mm -hmm. do insurance as well? No insurance. All cash pay. So could you kind of walk the audience through, like, there's a couple barriers sometimes, whether that's mentally with confidence, whether that is, um, you're starting your business and you're not sure what fees to do or how to set them. How did you grow in, um, kind of charging a fee that you're worth and raising your fees and, um, really growing your business in that capacity. Boy, that has been, um, such a journey. Um, you know, again, I was freelance before, and so I've set my own fee in the past, but you know, in a different capacity. So I'm, I'm comfortable charging. I'm comfortable collecting, but what exactly are we worth is what the market will bear. And what is our value because of our skill set and, and our knowledge and our special training. So when I finished my training, I, I charged 90. That was in t- 2019. Then I, um, as soon as I became licensed, I moved to 120. Then I moved to 150. And somebody told me along the way, um, somebody that was a couple years ahead of me said, um, whenever you're full, that might be a time 
to consider raising your fee. Um, now this was before the pandemic when every single person on the planet wanted mental health. So it used to be a little bit harder to get, to get full. Now we're full all the time, but, um, you know, so over time, maybe, I don't know, gosh, time's a little funny. Uh, over a three year period, I went from 120 to 175. Um, my current fee is 200 or 225 for couples. So the associates, okay. I started them at a hundred in 2019. I have subsequently raised them to 110, 120, 135, and now they're at 150. So in a two-year period, they've gotten four raises, a 50% raise, which is pretty big. And for them to be charging oh 150 God. is, as an associate, right, a pre-licensed level is pretty um, awesome <laughs> and unusual. Yeah. That is possible because of a couple of things. First of all, the market is tight. Second of all, these clients are mostly calling in for me. So they're prepared to pay my rate. And so they feel like, okay, $50 cheaper is great. Like that's, a, that's a, you know, and they're, and there's a certain amount of trust because they're coming in, you know, they're looking at my website and seeing sort of, and so by proxy, you know, the associates also get a, get a higher fee. Now, in all fairness, I do hire the best of the best. Like I screen them. I cherry pick really good people who already have at least, you know, 900 to a thousand hours of experience. And I give them training and I really am rigorous about the work they do. So I feel good about charging more, but, um, it's been, it's been sort of a learning curve of what the market will bear. And they've all gotten more training along the way too, as, as a caveat, like each of them have, have gotten specialized training. So I feel like, you know, I've got a new person starting, um, next month and I might have her have a, have a slide down to 135 because she's newer. So I, you know, until I sort of see, you know, I want to, I want to charge fairly for her. So yeah, sort of the logic. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And maybe, um, if, do you feel comfortable sharing this? If you don't No, no pressure to answer. What is normally the split for, if you had an associate, like what is typical, in terms of what they charge and what you pay them versus what you make. Sure. So we do a 60, 40 split. I get 60, they get 40. I know other um, okay. supervisors do like a 50, 50 split. Um, my logic for doing it is, is a few things. One is that basically all their leads are coming from me. Um, so that's valuable to the, um, with, when starting with me, you know, I try to do a whole wraparound. So they're, they're on the website. I'm asking them to write articles that I'm editing for them and putting, putting it out there. So they get, you know, some published work. Um, I have them running on simple practice, you know, and I pay for that simple practice is practice software that really streamlines everything, keeps track of the money, keeps track of the notes. Um, I give them business cards, you know, I promote them. I even, if they're writing articles, I'm buying advertising on Facebook against that. Like I want to promote us as professionals. I'm also paying, um, employer tax, you know, which is like 12%. Um, I'm paying all the fees right now on, on the credit card fees. So it ends up being, you know, I feel like it's a pretty fair thing. Some supervisors are only offering like, Hey, work online fully. So there's no overhead of space. That's the other thing, obviously, is I'm incurring mm -hmm. all the overhead for the, for the office. I have a beautiful office and they all get time in the office. Some supervisors don't offer that. So I could see how their fee could be lower. So you have to kind of look at what matters to you. Um, mm -hmm. the quality of the supervision you're going to get, um, 
you know, do you just want to make as much money as possible or do you also want this to be an extension of your training, hopefully? Um, and what type of leads are you going to get from the supervisor? You know, are they the type of clients you want to see? Um, yeah. And are you going to get, you know, good, good guidance about, about those cases that feels useful and not just, you know, sort of passing through. So there's different factors when, when, when choosing your site. Yeah. It sounds like what you are providing your associates is just immeasurably more, even when I'm thinking back to when I was an associate in private practice or other um, associates I know that have been in private practice, that's not always the case. Sometimes as an associate, you're still expected to do all your referrals. You're still expected to pay for, you know, different pieces. Um, so I think there's a lot that's evolving in our industry in terms of the standard of private practice associateship. So what you are describing is a great model. And I hope that people that are listening can replicate a similar philosophy of really investing in their associates so that they associates can thrive and so that your business can thrive too. So I really appreciate hearing some of the ins and outs of that. Um, yeah, I'm not trying to do. Oh, good. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say like, you know, I feel like sometimes within this, our community, there's a little bit of a deprivation mentality. And so there's, there's the idea of like, get the, get the office that's the cheapest or get the, you know, try not to like spend money on advertising or, I don't know. And I, I don't think that way. I like to have everything feel like a really good experience. I'm, I'm charging a lot for these clients to come in the door and I want them to have a beautiful office. I want them to have amenities like tea and, you know, I I provide, you know, good music, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have commercial music. Like, I mean, like I, I, the whole thing is a nice experience and they pay for that, but, but the, the supervisee that's going to work with me anyway, needs to also value that, but everybody's different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it's, it's sort of a mentality. And so I think asking more, um, thoughtful questions, I guess, about, you know, availability of this, of the supervisor and the expectations in terms of the environment and the types of, of clients, um, are, are all going to be factors that people should consider. Yeah, no, those are really valuable ideas. Um, now I'm wondering, um, something that we've talked about and something that you kind of already highlighted as you introduced your practice is that you have a specialty, that you have a niche and I call it niche, but I guess other people call it niche. And I know there's like a phrase niche is rich (laughs) is kind of like a a thought process of as a business owner, as a therapist, as a therapreneur, if you focus on a specific topic, if you become really skilled and really good at it that is where the money is. That's where the success is. That's where you thrive and that's where you flourish. So maybe you could kind of share a little bit about how you discovered your niche and also how that has helped your business flourish. Sure. I think having a niche or a niche is critical. Um, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to see couples. So that was already sort of a niche, but like, you know, um, people sort of gravitate to couples or they're like, no, thanks. Don't want that. But within couples, a topic that comes up pretty regularly is sex. And that is an area that most clinicians don't feel a lot of comfort working in. So already that was like a highlight. And I did early on, I did, um, a 15 hour 
sex therapy training just to get a taste of it. And like, did I like it? Yes, I liked it. So then I went and did a deeper dive. Um, an outgrowth of that too, in terms of looking at my niche, cause we're in a small market. So I think if you were in a big market, you could probably just have one and that would, that would suffice in a small market. There isn't necessarily enough of just that. So I've also for, uh, diversified a little bit further with, um, the sex addiction. And that was strategic on my part as well, because there's a lot of substance, um, addiction clinicians in town and a lot of resources there's like basically nothing for sex addiction. So that was an extension. I'm already interested and comfortable talking about sex. So sex addiction is, it it follows the addiction model, but it's applied to something else. I always think that's a great model. If you have an interest and then you can sort of marry it with something else. So like, for example, I've seen people that have gone to business school, um, but they don't do it exactly that way. They apply it to a specific industry that maybe they knew about before, or they go to law school, but then they work in-house counsel at a place where they have across, across, um, strength or knowledge rather than just working in the traditional realm. So I feel like with, with sex and with sex addiction, and then also LGBT, you know, that was one of my training sites. I love that community. I've always been an activist. So it's been really natural for me to work and support that population as well, which is really a pretty separate population from the other two. It just all nicely fits under the sex label, which I sort of made up, but there's a billion versions of this. You know, if you're interested Hmm. in, uh, disordered eating, um, or if you're interested in, um, gosh, you know, anything and, you know, children, um, and it could be children with autism. It could be children with disabilities. It could be, um, children with disordered eating. You know, if you, if you layer in a little bit that makes you different, not just the whole thing, I'll try to tackle Mm -hmm. everything. It really helps with your search, people finding you. It helps clinicians think of you for something specific. It makes you more valuable in the eyes of the client because you've got this specialized knowledge, assuming you do. Um, and people will wait for you. People will be more flexible in their schedules for you because they, they want you. And so, but you have to, you know, like in my case, I've got really got three specializations to, to, you know, kind of even it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I like what you said too, about like being thought of, because especially if you are well networked with therapists and maybe your caseload is full and you get referrals that you don't use and you want to pass them on to other people, you're right. Like if you know, someone has, you know, a really strong skill set or a specialization in something, they're the first to come to mind versus, you know, 30 plus other therapists. So they're not going to be someone you think of because they're just generically an LMFT. But when you have an actual, um, yeah, additional training, additional, um, education around that, that really makes you stand out. Yeah. And I think it's also, we, we, we know that we can do a lot more than just this one thing, but if you can articulate this one thing, it at least gives people kind of something to hang their hat on. And then as they get to know you better and see that you're a good clinician, they would likely also refer to you for more generalized cases. Um, but the reality is as I've gone on and initially I did see a wider range of things as it's gone on, I screen all the incoming calls and I take the ones I want and the ones I want are really in my specialization. I just prefer that work. And then I give the others to the associates or I refer them out. I do have about five or six therapists that I consistently refer to based on what's presenting in the, in the incoming call. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was going to chime in too, because I also have a couple of specializations, one being eating disorders and body image, um, and then also perinatal mental health. And I will say, and I'm sure you could speak into this as well, but by having a specialization, I have found that it has increased my networking twofold. So for example, Mm -hmm. with um, disordered eating body image, I am constantly collaborating with psychiatrists and dietitians mm-hmm. because if you're treating eating disorders, you need to have a, a treatment team, even in private practice. So I, you know, get referrals from them as well. I give referrals to them too. And then the same thing with perinatal mental health. I'm working with doulas. I'm working with mm-hmm. OBs. I'm getting a different stream of clients that maybe aren't on psychology today or aren't Googling on their websites, trying to find the right therapist because they're in their OB's office at their six week appointment saying, I think I have postpartum anxiety, or I think I have postpartum depression. So those OBs are then my allies so I can support their clients and vice versa. So I think niches and specialties are really beyond valuable, not just for our own clinical experience, but also for the business side of really, um, working collaboratively with other people in the community that are helping our clients. Well, and I will echo what you just said in that if a referral comes from another clinician or from a physician, it is like gold, right? It's just already you've been endorsed and people are so much more likely to just pull the trigger and not ask you a million questions and want to do a whole consultation. They, they know that you've been referred from a source they trust. And so that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, no, Definitely. Now I'm wondering, um, as we're kind of wrapping up our day, um, and our conversation, um, thinking back to when you first became a therapist or when you first dreamed up this entrepreneurial idea. So this could be your private practice. It could be other entrepreneurial ideas that you have. Cause I know you have a lot of goals and a lot of dreams. Um, <laughs> what, um, what advice would you give yourself now? What is something that you wish that you knew back then that you've learned along the way? There's enough work for everybody. Um, I will say that, that if you do good work, there will always be work for you. You can make a great living, Mm -hmm. um, from doing this. Also don't sacrifice your self-care along the way in service of getting ahead because it will catch up and you will burn out. So (laughs) take care of yourself along the way. And sometimes a pause is, is necessary and that's okay too. And it ends up, uh, you know, recharging you so that you come back stronger. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, no, that, that both of those pieces are so valuable because you're right. Like, you know, it's important to, to pause, to take care of ourselves, to, to nourish ourselves, because Mm -hmm. especially as therapists, we are the vessel, like without, we could have all the training, we could have the most impressive resume or, you know, all the clinical skills, but if we are depleted, if we're not nourished with our self-care, we burn out, we're not as effective. That translates into sessions that also translates into your business growth. Um, what, um, what would you say? Like, did you have moments that you found yourself burning out or maybe you could recognize burnout signs and then would kind of focus more on self-care or what has been your journey? Yeah, it's, there was the early on, it was like, Oh, am I going to have enough business? And then it was like, Oh, I have enough business. Then it's like, Oh my God, I have way too much business. I took on too much. What did I do? (laughs) And so it's like drinking from a fire hose, you know, and you're like, Ooh, so yeah, there's definitely been times that were treacherous with, um, 
all good things, but, but too much of the good things. So, um, Mm -hmm. what I've learned is also that there is in, in this particular line of work, there's sometimes, um, uh, like a delay before you realize, oh my gosh, it's too much. And then you've, you've committed to all these things. So you kind of have to just get through it, but you have to trust that down the road there will be more. So don't keep doing that to yourself. You know, like, like, know what your threshold is for clients and, and allow that range. Because what I found is that clients come back sometimes or they'll hit a stressful time and want double sessions, you know? And so my schedule is suddenly impacted that way. And I am like, Oh dear. So give yourself a little bit of a cushion and trust that maybe some downtime is just cyclical and it'll be okay. You know, don't fill every moment because it just, it, Mm -hmm. it ends up, um, it, I think it ends up leading to burnout. It has for me anyway. And, you know, so then what do I do is I pull back and take some time. Cause I'm also spending all my weekends working on my dissertation. So my life has oh been nonstop packed for two, three years now. Um, well, plus grad school, but you know, so yeah, I'm at the tail end of that and recognizing that I need to do what I do, what I say <laughs> more than I've done. Yeah. Well, I think too, the, the first piece of advice that you led with was, I don't know how you exactly worded it, but saying something along the lines of there's always going to be work if you do good work. Um, and I think that really like lends itself to the advice that you have of self-care, because when you go back to your confidence, if you go back to reminding yourself that you're doing good work, reminding yourself, you know, that your quality that you're bringing to the table is, you know, like you said, you find yourself with almost too many clients because you keep saying yes to different people. That I think is something that is important to hold on to because that reminds you it's okay if I say no to this yeah. client because another client's going to call next week, or it's okay if I need to take a month off to recalibrate, to go on vacation, to truly rest because I work really hard and I know that there's going to be more clients calling and I have built a sustainable business structure that will afford me to go on a vacation or maybe even just budgeting that into your annual budget of I want to work this amount of weeks a year and I want to take this amount of weeks on vacation. So what does my, you know, overhead look like? How, what fee do I need to charge to make that my reality? So when you really look at that business structure, you're able to actually prepare for it and you're actually able to pause when you need to pause and play when you need to play. Mm -hmm. I actually base my projections on a 46 week work year. So yeah, I build in four weeks. I love that, which I think it sounds so obvious, but you'd be surprised how many therapists don't think that way (laughs) and Mm -hmm. kind of just their budget becomes just whatever it is each month. And it's so important to have that framework and to have those goals and to really know your finances. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Well, I am so glad you came on the podcast today. Um, for anyone else listening, I don't even think I shared this at the beginning. Jen has been someone in my life that has always been a few steps ahead of me, a few years ahead of me. Um, we both went to the same graduate school, Antioch University, Santa Barbara. Um, she also recruited me to join the board, um, for, um, SB camp. And that has been so prolific in building my private practice and my skill set, my connections in the community. Um, Jen was our president are now our past president of SB camp. And I am stepping into presidency in January. So she very much has mentored me in different capacities. And another fun fact is at my graduation from my master's in clinical psychology, Jen was our guest speaker that shared about her clinical journey, about 
her traineeships, about um, her grind and her hustle <laughs> to get her hours done quickly. And so she was definitely a motivator for me to finish my hours within the record time as well. <laughs> so um, it's so important to have people like Jen in your life, whether you're listening to the podcast and you're, you don't know her personally, but you're still learning and growing from her wisdom or whether you find a mentor locally that's similar to Jen that can encourage you. So Thank you so much, Jen. Is there anything um, this audience can learn in terms of, I will plug your website and socials into the show notes, but anything that we should know about that you're up to or what does the next couple months look like for you? Well, I'm finishing hopefully my uh, my PhD this year, this calendar year. So that is very exciting. And then next year, I'm planning on trying to do more speaking um, opportunities and I'm, I'm cooking up some ideas around workshops. Um, probably, uh, around sex therapy. So yeah, building a better sex life, um, for couples or individuals is sort of on the horizon. So yeah, anybody that's interested can follow me, um, online. Uh, uh, uh my Instagram is Riviera underscore therapy. So please follow me there. And that way, you know, I can, you can message me and keep, you know, I can keep you in the loop. Um, you can also reach me uh, directly through email, J-E-N-N at rivieratherapy.com. And if you have interest in reaching out or ideas or business ideas or, um, yeah, career stuff, let me know. I'm here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. It was such a pleasure to connect with you and I will see you on the spin bike soon at the gym. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Flourishing Therapreneur podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as that helps other clinicians and therapreneurs find our community and thrive through our offerings. Want to take your business a step further? Visit theflourishingtherapreneur.com or our Instagram with the same handle. Connect with our free community or sign up for an upcoming course to help cultivate your thriving business and endeavors so you can flourish personally and professionally. Until next time, I'm your host, Claire Blakey, and I believe you deserve to flourish as a therapreneur.